This is the Raising Freethinkers podcast. I'm Dale McGowan, editor and co-author of Raising Freethinkers and Parenting Beyond Belief, books for raising compassionate, curious kids without religion. Episode 33, The Devil You Know. A little while after Parenting Beyond Belief was released in 2007, I mentioned that I think religious literacy is an important thing for our kids and ourselves to have, and many agreed, as did most of the contributors to the book. But I got an email from one parent who asked, why should I fill my kids' heads with all that mumbo-jumbo? Now, here are my four reasons for our kids to actually know about religion, even if they end up not believing in it. The first reason is to understand the world. A huge percentage of the news includes a religious component, and if you add the fact that 90% of our fellow humans express themselves through religion, it becomes clear that ignorance of religion cuts our children off from understanding what's happening in the world around them and why. second reason is to be empowered in discourse. Way back in the U.S. presidential election of 2004, Howard Dean was running for president, and when a reporter asked him for his favorite book of the New Testament, Howard Dean jokingly said, well, this week it's the book of Job, because he had had a bad week. But the fact that Job is actually in the Old Testament, well, that's a trivial thing to most of us, but to a huge whack of the religious electorate, Dean had revealed a forehead-smacking level of ignorance about the central narrative of their lives. For those people, Dean was instantly discounted, irrelevant. Because we want our kids' voices to be heard in the many issues with the religious component, it's important for them to have some knowledge of that component. Third reason, to make an informed decision. I really genuinely want my kids to make up their own minds about religion, and I trust them to do so. Any non-religious parent who says they want to allow their kids to make their own choices, but never exposes them to religion or religious ideas, is being dishonest. For kids to make a truly informed judgment about this, they have to have access to it. And the last reason is to avoid what I call the teen epiphany. This is a big one. Struggles with identity and confidence and countless other issues are a given part of the teen years. And sometimes these struggles generate a genuine personal crisis, at which point religious peers often pose a single question to your child. Don't you know about Jesus? And if your child says, not really, The peer will come back incredulously with, You don't know Jesus? Oh my gosh, Jesus is the answer to your problems. And boom, we have an emotional hijacking. And such hijackings don't typically end up in moderate Methodism, by the way. This is the moment when non-religious teens fly all the way across the spectrum to evangelical fundamentalism. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a parent who said, my 15-year-old daughter is suddenly going to an evangelical church with her friends and praising Jesus. I don't know how this happened. We never talked about religion. 
Well, there you have it. A little knowledge about religion allows the teen to say to a peer, yeah, I know about Jesus, and to know that reliable answers to personal problems are better found elsewhere. Now, once I understood the reasons to make my kids religiously literate, I had to figure out how to do it. And my first attempt was a complete failure. I told the story in the episode called We Are the Mythmakers. When they were really young, I was still figuring out the non-religious parenting thing, but I knew I wanted them to know about religion, whether or not they ended up believing any of it. But I didn't know how to do that. At one point, I decided I would read some of the Bible to them. I'm not kidding. I basically said, gather round, children. This is the Bible. This is the Jewish parts called the Old Testament, except the Jews don't call it that. They call it the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. This is the Christian part. Well, the, the whole thing is the Christian Bible, but they took the... Let me start over. And they were like three through nine years old, and they're all going, oh my God, and falling back forward in their chairs before I could even get to in the beginning. Now, I didn't get very far before I realized that it was the worst possible approach. It's not even fair to the Bible. Religious literacy shouldn't take place in big sit-down lectures. It takes place in thousands of little moments woven into a lifetime. I don't even think of it as religious literacy anymore. Exposing kids only to world religions is its better than just one religion, I suppose, but it still felt a little imperialistic to my anthropology student roots. I studied folklore in college, so in addition to stories from the big five religions, my kids heard about Yasi Atere, who I mentioned in the Useful Monsters episode, the little blonde boy who kidnaps kids in Paraguay who are not napping when they should be. That's a good one for bedtime. And the shark god of Molokai and Anansi the spider and the cargo cults of the South Pacific. We told all these stories in Paul Bunyan and King Arthur in the same spirit, letting the ideas of religion and myth and legend commingle in their minds, because they should. They're cut from the very same cloth. And part of the trick is to catch opportunities when they happen. One time I heard my son singing and practicing guitar. It was Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And when he got to the strange line, well, she tied you to her kitchen chair, broke your throne and cut your hair. And I asked if he knew the reference. Then I told him about the myth of Samson, a hero whose power was contained in his long hair. The best story in the Bible, by the way, just in terms of mythic coolness, Judges 13 through 16. It needs a good retelling. Bible language isn't great, but you'll get the idea. If we do it right, we expose our kids not just to religion, which is one type of story, but to the broadest possible assortment of the stories that we tell each other. So my approach changed early on from attempts at big lectures to this kind of opportunistic peppering, taking advantage of small moments for a little knowledge and treating religion, myth, and legend equally. It all starts with talk. All literacy begins with oral language. So, 
Toss tidbits of religious knowledge and myth and legend into your everyday conversations. When my youngest was about four years old, we drove by a mosque and she pointed out the pretty gold dome. And I said, oh, that is pretty. That's a kind of church called a mosque. You know, people who go there pray five times a day and they all face a city far away when they do it. There's no need to get into the five pillars of Islam. Then a few months later, we saw a woman on the street wearing a hijab and connected it. Remember the mosque? The church with that gold dome, I said. That's what some people wear who go to that church. Now, as kids mature, you want to include more complex information. The good, the bad, and the ugly. No discussion of Martin Luther King Jr. is complete without noting that he was a Baptist minister and that his religion was important to him. You can't grasp 9-11 without understanding Islamic afterlife beliefs. And the founding of our country is reframed by noting that the majority of the founders were religious skeptics of one type or another. Talk about the religious components of events in the news, from the stem cell debate, to global warming, to terrorism, to nonviolence advocacy. You also want to read myths of many traditions. Myths make terrific bedtime stories. Greek, Roman, Norse, Hopi, Inuit, Zulu, Indian, and more. And don't forget the Judeo-Christian stories. Placing them with other traditions removes the pedestal and underlines what they have in common. In the Beginning, Creation Stories from Around the World by Virginia Hamilton tells not 25 myths from a single culture, but the same myth from 25 different cultures, how the world began. The Judeo-Christian story is just in the mix, not exalted or denigrated, just one of many. By the end of this beautifully illustrated book, kids see that these are all attempts by people throughout history and around the world to understand the world before they had more empirical ways of doing so. And sometimes even after they had better ways, some of the legends are just so emotionally fulfilling, like the ones that put humans at the center of the creator's concern, that they're hard to let go of. Kids can figure that out. There's also Christine Truian's Christian Mythology, an illustrated look at Christian stories presented as exactly that, mythic stories. The Amazon page for this one puts the target reader at second to third grade, but I think that's way too young for most readers. I I ran the text through a readability calculator, and it came out between ninth and twelfth grade on every one of the scales. But you know your child. Anyway, this book is definitely worth a look. Another thing you want to do for religious literacy is attend church once in a while with trusted relatives or friends or just your family. Keeping kids entirely separated from the experience of church can actually be risky. It can make them think that something magical happens in there, something that's so powerful that mom and dad are are skittish about it. If your child is invited by friends to go to their church, which in certain parts of the U.S. is going to happen, say yes and go along. The conversations that you have afterward can be some of the most productive in your whole religious literacy plan. It's usually best to avoid a fundamentalist church where the messaging can effectively scare them out of thinking for themselves. 
but they shouldn't get to age 18 without seeing the inside of a church or you risk creating forbidden fruit. Take them once in a while just to see what it's all about and to see that there's no magical land of unicorns and fairies behind those doors. Although the occasional experience is worthwhile, church going on a regular basis has very little to do with religious literacy. Mainstream church going also exposes kids to a single religious perspective. That's not literacy. In fact, it usually amounts to indoctrination. In his fabulous book, Religious Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know and Doesn't, Stephen Prothero points out that faithfully church-going Americans are incredibly ignorant of even the most basic tenets of their own belief systems, not to mention others. Europeans, on the other hand, are religiously knowledgeable and rarely darken the door of a church. And in one Pew Research poll after another, atheists and agnostics turn out to be the most religiously literate subgroup in the poll. These things are no coincidence. Most European countries have mandated religious education and very secular populations. In the U.S., unless they attend a Unitarian Fellowship or Ethical Society, kids have almost no religious education, and faith is most easily sustained in that ignorance. Learning about religion leads to thinking about religion, and you know what happens then. Finally, there are movies. One of the most effective and enjoyable ways to expose your kids to religious ideas. For the youngest, this might be Prince of Egypt, Little Buddha, Kiriku and the Sorceress, an absolutely fantastic African animist tale. By middle school, it's Bruce Almighty, Noah, and Kundun. High schoolers can see and enjoy something like The Two Popes or Schindler's List, Jesus Camp, Dogma, eventually, and Inherit the Wind. Now, that list alone touches on both the positive and negative influences of religion. One special gem, don't forget Jesus Christ Superstar. It's a subversive retelling of the last days of Christ. There are no miracles. The story ends with the crucifixion, not the resurrection. And Judas is the hero, urging Jesus not to forget about the poor as the ministry becomes a personality cult. So don't be worried that knowledge of religion is going to lead your child by the nose into religion. It's actually going to put them in the driver's seat and make it much more likely that they can make an informed choice. Hi, it's Dale McGowan. Before I sign off, I want to tell you about another Only Sky podcast. Pin Drop with Anthony Pin is a podcast celebrating human creativity in the broadest sense. The urge to create something that didn't exist before, whether a book or visual art, music or dance, a new community or a social movement. Anthony's guests in season one include Sasha Sagan, author of For Small Creatures Such As We, modern art curator Valerie Castle Oliver, historian Chris Cameron, filmmaker Jeremiah Kamara, visual artist Jamal Cyrus, hip-hop activist Harry Allen, visual artist Anglebeer Matoire, counselor Candace Gorham, theologian Philip Reed Butler, and professor of secular studies Phil Zuckerman. Subscribe to Pin Drop with Anthony Pin wherever you get your podcasts. The Raising Freethinkers podcast is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media.
Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for Raising Freethinkers. Thinkers.